I do want to mention to you uh, how, how, you know, pride is a bad thing, right? That's what we understand. It's one of seven deadly sins. But there's a sense of uh, being pleased with something that someone has done. And, and it's different than pride. Pride says, I'm better than you. Being pleased says, that was fantastic. And I want to say at home for the holidays, I was so pleased so sanctifiedly proud of Kermansville Alliance and uh, just your presence and, and the way you serve. And I say this thing all the time, uh, and I mean it. Um, as a pastor, I serve people who are better than me all the time. So many of you show Christ to me, and that's just a beautiful thing. We are really blessed to be part of the body that we're blessed of. So uh, thank you for being you again, Kermansville Alliance. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles. We're going to be in several passages of Scripture. We're going to start in Colossians 2. If you happen to have the Bible on your phone, and you have the YouVersion Bible app, and you click the little menu and look for a live event near you, you should find one. And just this week has the Scripture passages in it. It doesn't have any notes to go with it, but it's an easy way to find the Scripture. Some of them will be on the screen, maybe not all of them, but some of them. You know, when I preach, I try to preach messages that are relatable and are relevant and that, that, you know, give me something I can use. That's what I try to do. Give you stuff that you can take home with you. And therefore, I preach regarding maybe anxiety. And then a couple weeks later, maybe on being real. And maybe later on having authentic relationships. Stuff that's relatable like that. And those are relevant kind of studies. However, however, you know that you can get that kind of teaching. How to have better relationships. How to deal with anxiety. You can get that kind of teaching other places besides the church. You can get it from maybe mental health agencies, maybe a self-help book, maybe podcasts. Even Dr. Phil would cover some of these topics. And honestly, sometimes with perspectives that are helpful that I might not even think to cover. So what are we doing here on Sunday mornings? I mean, if we're just here to get kind of a self-help thing on how to deal with anxiety or how to behave like an adult, can't we get that somewhere else? And frankly, aren't there people that can do it better than, than us, maybe? What, what, what are we doing here Sunday mornings? What makes the message of churches like Kermansville Alliance different than that of a social agency or a self-help book? And you can answer that a number of ways. Maybe you think, well, we use the Bible. That's a pretty good answer. We use the Bible, and, and they don't. Well, not always, not always. Sometimes some of those agencies or those books or those podcasts, they, they do have scripture, but you know that you can use the Bible without knowing the guy that wrote it, right? And, and that's problematic in my mind anyway. I can remember years ago, there was a gentleman in my church, he was kind of new to the church, and he said, hey, pastor, I want to give you this, this will date me, ready? This cassette series, you know, and it was one of those big vinyl things with cassettes in it. I want to give you this cassette series of this guy. And what it was, it was podcast, but it was delivered in a non-digital form. Uh, I want to give you this, this cassette series of this guy. It's called Power Conversations. I think it's, I think it's Christian because he uses a lot of Bible. Sure enough, every cassette had a scripture passage on it, and he used scripture passages all the time, but every cassette in Power Conversations told you how to bully the people around you. That's not what the Bible's for, although it's been used for that a lot. That's not what the Bible's for, and that's not... So using the Bible isn't a guarantee that what you're getting is any different than anywhere else. Some people might say, well, it's simpler than that, Pastor. When we come to church, we get something different because God. We talk about God. 
And we find out how we can use God to deal with our anxiety, and we can use God to have better marriages, and we can use... Do you see what's wrong with that? God is not a tool that you use. He is never to be used. He's God. We're not. We don't make use of him. So that's probably not the difference. I, I think there are a lot of differences, but, but I want to suggest to you, in my mind, the difference between a podcast that helps you deal with issues or maybe a, a, a mental health group or maybe um, uh, even a self-help book, the difference between them and the church is the cross. The difference is the cross. In fact, I would say the cross is the crux of the matter. And there's probably three of you that understood the pun. Bethany, I knew you would. She's smiling and nodding, right? Because the Latin word for cross is crux. So yeah, the cross is the crux of our faith. It's the focal point of our faith. And that's where we go on Sunday mornings. And when I talk to you about the issues, the relevant issues you deal with, I always want to take you to the cross because that's where the solution is, always. Do you remember when I started this series a week ago, this series on staying off of the side streets uh, that, are, that are places where you'll find unwanted behavior? When I spoke to you about that, started speaking to you about that, I said, I'm not going to give you like easy answers. I want to take you to the cross. And that's what I want to do this morning. And there's good reason for that, because the cross is actually where forgiveness was purchased, where it was purchased. I was speaking to a gentleman in the early service, before the early service, and he said to me, I saw the special on TV that said, you know, a lot of churches don't emphasize the cross, and historically they didn't emphasize the cross at all. It wasn't really about Jesus dying for our sins. And I said, and those churches, in my mind, are just off the track because the cross is the crux of the matter. It's where the forgiveness of sin was purchased. I mean, I ask you to open your Bibles to Colossians. If you look at chapter 2, and you look at verse 13, and some of these I'll put on the screen, some I won't, but chapter 2, verse 13 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. If there was no cross, our sins would not be paid for. If there was no cross, you and I would have to pay for our sins. And you know what the payment for sin is? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The cross is important because that's where forgiveness is purchased. And aside from saving us from eternal punishment, the cross is actually where our old self died and our new self came to be. You know, a few weeks ago we did a baptism service and different pastors do baptism differently. I've watched Alliance Video Magazine where they'll have a, a person in a river and uh, they'll, the pastor will put his head on their hand and they will kind of just like squat down into the water and come back up out. That's cool. I, I really don't care too much about how you do baptism. I care about how I do it though. And, and when I do a baptism, you know this because I said it a few weeks ago when we had a baptism service, I have a candidate facing that way. I have my hand behind him. I have my partner across from me helping me so I bring him back up. And then I have them hold their nose, right? 
and I take them, they're facing this way, I recline them into the water. And what I'm thinking in my mind and what I've told them to expect is that this is symbolic of you are dead with Christ and made alive as a new creature with Christ. The cross is technically where that happened. But somehow or other, well, the Apostle Paul says it so beautifully in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave me, I'm sorry, who loved me and gave himself for me. And what he's saying there is, I was crucified with Christ. Paul literally was not on on the cross with Christ in person. But when you come to receive Christ as your Savior, something happens and no one knows how. But spiritually speaking, the old sinful part of you, the dark part of you, the embarrassing part of you, the part of you that doesn't love your neighbor as yourself but kind of hates that neighbor, the part of you that that is selfish, that part of you experienced a death. And we all have that part, by the way. Only the most self-righteous among us would say, well, I don't have a dark dark bone in my body. (laughs) Yeah, your first one is self-righteousness, right? (laughs) This passage says it was at the cross where that part died. It was crucified with Christ. It no longer lives. And the life you live now, you live by trusting God. That doesn't mean you are sinless. We are not sinless. What it means is a miraculous transformation occurred in your connection with Christ at Calvary. That your old self died and a new self came to be. That's a beautiful thing. That's why we look to the cross. The other part of that is The cross is where you are called to die daily. The cross is where heart change happens, where meaningful, effective, honest, genuine heart change occurs. You know, there was an old hymn that uh, was sung for generations. Do you know what? I'm not going to sing it, so don't worry. But it says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gains I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. It's kind of funny as musical transition has come through church through the centuries, no doubt, but through my lifetime, I would often remark to people who had a genuine and and emotional concern that the old hymns will be lost, I, I would say something like this, you know, if they're good enough, they'll stand on their own. And that one did. I mean, we sing that here in, the, in this service. And, and the individual who, who put it to music added a lyrical bridge in it. Are, do, did you ever notice what it says? He says, oh, the wonderful cross. The wonderful cross. It bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Hmm. Jesus says it so clearly. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, the scripture says, He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their very self? When you come to the cross, you come to die daily. To yourself. That's what denying yourself means. But I have every right to get back at him. I'm going to get even. No, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to die 
and find that I can truly live. And what I find when I deny myself is real life. That's what you find. That's what we find. So we're not talking about Dr. Philsuff in this series or any other. We're not offering you some self-help plan. We're looking into God's word to see what it has to say about daily life and how, as we go to the cross, we can experience that. So let's think about this escapism extension. You know, these are all like side streets we can get on. I live on Park Avenue extension. It is a dead-end road. It dead-ends in a cul-de-sac. You're not going anywhere from there except back to where you came. Escapism extension. I think of a, a escapism as a, a tendency to want to avoid stress and to want to avoid difficulty and pain and heartache and especially responsibility regardless of the cost. So I don't want to do my homework, so I'm going to leave that textbook in my locker at school and I'm not taking it home on the bus. That's escapism 101. Learned that in what, sixth grade? I learned it in second. Okay. <laughs> Your wife says those four words that every husband dreads hearing. You know what they are. Supper is coming late. No, it's not those. We need to, what is it, gentlemen? Talk. Yeah. We need to talk. And you head, you just grab your hunting hat and you just head right into the woods. (laughs) And she turns around like, where'd he go? And then you lie when you come home. You say, I didn't even hear you say that escapism, right? Or you don't want to deal with that new project at work. Oh, I've hated this project. Today's the kickoff day. They're really counting on me. I'm calling in sick. I have sick days. (laughs) Escapism. Turn your Bibles to Mark 6. We're going to look at another passage there in just a moment. The examples of escapism are countless because, frankly, everybody feels like escaping occasionally. All of us feel that way. Have you heard this? Want to get away? Right? Southwest Airline built an airline empire on that slogan. Want to get away? And there's, there's another one. It uh, looks like the picture that's on the screen. Change your latitude. And that's escaping through a bottle. That's an unwise thing. Sometimes I look at Laurel and I'll say to her, I want to tell you, if I don't get out of Kerwinsville this week, I am going to die. And occasionally my wife looks at me and she says, if you don't get out of here, you are going to die. Don't you have somewhere to go? In the highway of life, there's really nothing wrong with pulling over and getting into a rest area. In fact, that's essential. From time to time, it's healthy to get away. The Bible speaks of it, especially in the life of Jesus. Jesus got away a lot, but he never escaped in that sense that we're talking about escaping. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, follow along in your Bibles. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Okay, let me give you some context here. So Jesus' apostles, he had sent them out to do ministry, to preach the good news and to heal the sick and to cast out demons, and they, and they were successful. And that's pretty impressive right there. They're impressed about it. And so they come back to Jesus and they're talking to him about, about, we even saw miracles happening. We saw people healed. We saw demons submitting to us in your name. And in verse 31, the text goes on to say, Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a solitary place. So they're withdrawing. They're getting away from everything. Mark notes that it's after 
their report about, wow, look at what we did ministry-wise, that Jesus says those words, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. They needed to get away. As Matthew records the same story and talks about it, um, he talks about the death of John the Baptist kind of in the same breath. He talks about the disciples going out and doing their thing. Then he talks about how Herod has John the Baptist decapitated, brings his head in. Wow, this is so crazy, isn't it? Brings his head in on a platter, gives it to a young girl who gives it to her mom, Herod's wife, I think, or something like that. Hello? That's all good. That's all good. Tell them I said hi. So, so Matthew tells that story, and he ends that story in Matthew fourteen twelve, saying, John's disciple came and took away his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. That was at the same time. So Jesus is listening to his disciples excitingly talk about the ministry that they had, and, 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 and at the same time, Jesus has just been told that John the Baptist who is a family member, a relative. On top of that, John the Baptist is the one who baptized him. On top of that, John the Baptist is the first one who ever said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first one who told everyone he's here to take away God's, God's punishment, God's wrath. And, 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 and John the Baptist, when he baptizes Jesus, I'm sure he did it my way, when he baptizes Jesus, right? When he baptizes Jesus, a voice comes from heaven. The Father speaks from heaven. The Spirit descends as a dove onto the Son of God who's being baptized. How do you process all that? That his head is on a platter and his body's in the ground and the disciples are all excited. I know what I would say. I would say, hey, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest because there are times that you need to get away. It's not just healthy, it's essential. So I'm not, when I talk to you about escapism, I'm not talking about that healthy getting away talking to you about an unhealthy getting away. And, and, and there, there's a difference. Have you seen people who are like, they're getting away, not so they can refresh themselves to come back and take on the day, but rather they're getting away because they just want to escape responsibilities. How do you discern the difference? One author noted that we're probably on escapism extension when getting away becomes a matter of Avoidance. Avoidance. I don't know uh, if you ever heard of M. Scott Peck, a book called The Road Less Traveled. Who has heard of that or read that? Anybody? Yeah, a few of us. Um, M. Scott Peck was a psychiatrist, I believe, at least a psychologist, maybe a psychiatrist. He served in the U.S. military, and then he had a private practice. He was a good writer. Um, He's not uh, what you and I might think of as an evangelical Christian. He's long since passed away. I came upon his book because I was doing some counseling with a woman who had discovered it in Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a New York Times bestseller for a long time, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous advocated it a lot. And at the start of the book, he speaks about this concept of avoidance, and, and he says it so well. I just want to put his words on the screen. He says, the tendency to avoid problems and emotional suffering inherent in them is the primary basis of all human mental illness. That's a bold statement. And then Peck goes on to say, since all of us have this tendency to a greater or lesser degree, all of us are mentally ill to a greater or lesser degree. Hmm. Maybe so. Maybe so. 
But this concept of escapism comes to us in very everyday ways. For example, sometimes avoidance shows up in a tendency to procrastinate. We put things off because deep down we just don't want to deal with them. Laurel and I pay different bills in our family. One of my bills that I pay is uh, any health-related bills from the doctor or the hospital or whatever. And Laurel will put that on the kitchen table, and three days later she'll say, are you going to pay that? And I'm like, I really hate to pay that. But I'm trying to avoid it. I'm like, I'm getting away from that so I can regroup, so I can go ahead and pay that later. It's nothing but avoidance. It's escapism. I should know. The escapism extension, that's a dead end. Pay the stinking bill. Right? Avoidance come out sometimes in self-indulgence or overindulgence, rather, in, in hobbies. Do you know anybody with that problem? They just spend too much time with their hobby? Is that the guy in the mirror? I don't know. And when this happens, you generally might feel like, where did a day go, you know? I just sat down this morning, you know, during my break, and I started reading this book. Where has the time gone? It's too late to start supper. We're going to have to go out to eat, honey. Okay. Binge watching. What do you mean it's three in the morning? I just started watching this. Playing on your smartphone, time is gone. I want to tell you, the cost of overindulgence can be pretty significant. I want to tell you a story. The name of the story is Gary Went Flying. Now, I want to know, has anyone ever heard this story? Gary Went Flying. Yes, Bethany again. You and I are such great nerds. Anyone else? Gary Went Flying? All right, you've got to be a real nerd to have heard this story, so by the end of the service, you will be a real nerd. When microcomputers were new, In other words, Apple had just put the first computer out on a piece of wood, and then ones to follow, the Apple II had come along, 2E might not have been here yet. IBM saw that, and IBM was a huge corporation. They had so much money and so much influence, and they saw that technology, and they said, we are going to do that. And so they introduced what they called the IBM PC, but they needed an operating system for that. Some of you are like, what's an operating system? Is that like a doctor does that or what? No, Windows is your operating system, or the Mac graphical interface is your operating system. They wanted an operating system for their IBM PC, because without an operating system, it will not operate. And, and they had heard they could go to a gentleman whose name was Gary Kildall. And if memory serves me right, he lived in Arizona. He was kind of reclusive. He had written an operating system that was working really well in in different environments. It was called CPM, Control Program Modulator. I know all this nerd stuff, right? And so and so he had what they needed, and they called, and they said, hey, we're coming to look at CPM. We're thinking of putting that on our IBM PCs. We'll be there. And so the men in suits were coming. IBM, they wore suits, white ties, skinny black ties. I'm sorry, white shirts, skinny black ties. Gary, he was a hippie. They're coming to my house in Arizona, and Gary had money. But he did not like suits or the men who were in them because they scared him or something. It was stressful. He had a plane. And when they got there, Gary went flying. That's the story. He took off and went flying in his airplane. Now, there are very various uh, accountings of that because a lot of that stuff from the early microcomputer days becomes legend, right? But that's the essence of it. So what's IBM going to do? They need an operating system. They heard about a guy in Seattle. In fact, the guy in Seattle kind of sent them down to see Gary. And so they went back to him. And they said, can you help us? And Bill Gates said, I think I can. Oh, wow. A lot of people look at that, and they see Gary's flight as an example of a man using his hobby to escape the difficulties that were before him, difficulties that would have paid off like crazy, like crazy. Escapism, extension, it's a dead-end street for Gary, it's a dead-end street for you and for me. 
It shows up in procrastination, in overindulgence in hobbies, and in unhealthy dependence. Change your latitude. Careful about that. Careful about that. Dr. Sinha Rajita of Yale University. I picked him because he wrote from the Department of Psychology a really impressively um, adored uh, document regarding this very subject. I pulled one, one sentence out of this impressive document. Let me just read it to you. He says, There is substantial literature on the significant association between acute and chronic stress and the motivation to abuse addictive substances. No kidding, Jack. No kidding. Do you get the point there? Sometimes when we're dealing with something we'd like to escape from, we go to alcohol or other related drugs. And and, and escapism is frequently identified as a contributor to addiction, but it is never considered a remedy to it. Never. Escapism extension, it's a dead-end street. How about turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 6? Let's go there, can we? I want to mention, it's kind of easy to understand why people head to escapism. And, and the first one, you could probably write this sermon yourself, this part of it anyway. Why do you go to escapism? Because it feels like relief in the moment. It feels like this is a good idea. It's great to get out from under this heavy weight of responsibilities I have. I chuckle when I read the language of Proverbs 6. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 11. I, I, I chuckle because I hear the word sluggard. You know, who uses that word anymore? Look, look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? <laughs> when will you get up from your sleep? I can imagine my wife coming down to our family room and I'm sitting there and she says, How long will you lie there, sluggard? <laughs> She's not done that yet. She will now. Verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Escapism extension feels like a good place, but it's not. Something that naturally follows is the fact that humankind struggles with laziness. We struggle with laziness. Listen to that passage again. I'm just going to read verse 9 from it, and, and it's from the New Living Translation. Listen to what it says. But you, lazy bones, doesn't say sluggard. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? Objects at rest tend to stay at rest. And if you're not resisting laziness, you will find yourself on escapism extension. I believe with all my heart that Satan deceives us into avoiding responsibility. Let me say that sentence again. I believe with all my heart that Satan demons, unclean spirits, whatever you want to say, that they work on our brain in ways that make us feel like escapism is legitimate and we want to avoid responsibility. I say that for a lot of times. Any time you see something that makes no sense, and often escapism makes no sense, Anytime I see that, I wonder if Satan is involved. You know, the Apostle Paul, in an unrelated incident, he's talking to Christians in Corinth, to the church in Corinth, about their gatherers, gatherings. And their gatherings are kind of chaotic. And in verse chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, he says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So when you see chaos, you got to wonder, I'm pretty sure that didn't come from God. Where'd that come from? An escapism extension? Those street, that street is lined 
by cars filled with chaos. I encounter people as a pastor who have not paid their power bills in months. So they have a bill for $80, $120, they live in an apartment, and they don't take the responsibility to pay that, and it goes on and on and on and on, and then they come to me, and I verified this with one of my peers, another pastor in town, am I remembering this right? Does this really happen? Because it's so bizarre. Does this really happen? He said, yeah. He said, I've had people come to us and say, we need help with our electric bill, and we say, how can we help you? Can you tell us about your bill? And it's over $2,000. And we're like, I don't think we can help you with that. I don't think we can help you with that. How does someone let that happen? I have to wonder if Satan's deception is involved. I wonder if Satan made escapism look like a good choice. And when something makes no sense at all, I tend to feel like the father of lies. That's what Jesus calls Satan. I tend to think maybe he's hard at work. So ask yourself, are you prone to procrastination? Do you find yourself wasting time and then wondering, where did the day go? Are you tempted to escape in ways that you know are not healthy, but you're going to do it anyway? Do you find yourself regretting your choices? You know, if you see yourself in this, you may wonder, how in the world do I get off of this little piece of highway and back onto the main road where I need to be? And I want to tell you this. You're going to have to put the car in reverse because it's a dead-end street and it's parked tight with other cars that are just sitting there not knowing how to get out. And so you're going to have to stop what you're doing. You're going to have to go back and kind of, Reset yourself on the right path because there's not a lot of wisdom in the direction you're headed. Wisdom. That might be the first thing that you need to give consideration to, to to make the pursuit of wisdom a life choice. A life choice. Hunger for it. Run after wisdom. Pursue it. Nurture it. Help it grow. Some of you know a Clearfield County native whose name is Reverend Dr. Nace Howell. Any of you know Reverend Dr. Nace Howell? Half a dozen of you, yeah, yeah. He attended Kermansville Alliance before he went away to college. During that time, he did our youth ministry here at Kermansville Alliance. I knew every day when I shook his hand what he would say before we left. He would, and I'm gonna impersonate Nace. I hope he watches, because I'd just like him to see the Steve Shields impersonation of Reverend Dr. Nace. Nace, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Pastor Steve. Good, good. Hey, I have a big favor to ask. And I know it's the same favor he asked me last week. Sure, what is it, Nace? Pray that I have wisdom. Pray that I have wisdom. Let me tell you something. A guy who every time he sees his pastor says, pray that I have wisdom, is a guy who is pursuing wisdom with all his heart. That's who I want to be, but I don't want to talk like him. <laughs> I love you, Nace. <laughs> Such a great prayer. Pray that I have wisdom. Because that kind of prayer helps you stay off of these side streets. Moving with wisdom helps you think beyond the moment. Keeps you off of escapism extension. Number two, be willing to take life's difficulties by the horns. You ever, uh, I grew up on a farm. Do not do this with the, the bull. I mean, the big guy. Don't do this with him. But the young steers on a farm, grab a hold of them by their horns if they still got them and try to wrestle with them. 
Some of you are nodding. You've done this. Some of you smell like you did it. Because <laughs> when they're young, you can wrestle them around, and it's pretty fun. But as they get older, you're going to be laying in the manure, you know? But it's such a fun thing to do when you're a kid, to take that thing by the horns and kind of wrestle around with it that way. That's what I'm asking you to do with the challenges that confront you, not because it's fun, but because it's healthy. It's healthy. Years ago, there was a gentleman who would stop by my office <laughs> with a list on one of those little seno pads, the yellow paper. It was a list of things he didn't like about me. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. How'd he fit it onto one page? He really liked his previous pastor. He didn't care too much for my ministry, and so he would bring a list of complaints written on paper, numbering one to something teen, usually. And you got to know, after the first time, when I saw him coming, I wanted to turn off the lights and lock the door. But doggone it, my car is out in the drive, in the parking lot, and I can't. What was I, what was I wanting to do? Escape. Escape. Well, there was no escape, and I'd like to say it's because I was so wise that I did this, but I only did it because there was no escape. I took the bull by the horns. And so when he came in, as he was coming, I took two chairs, I set them side by side. And then we talked for a moment, and I said, have a seat. I sat right beside him and said, let's see your note, buddy. And he'd get the note, and he'd show it to me. First, he didn't want to. I said, no, show it to me. We need to talk about this stuff. It's on your mind. Let's talk. And he'd go through that note. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, that's what I'm going to do with Pastor Steve. Don't you dare. (laughs) Don't you dare. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, though, I learned to kind of face the fact that those interactions were unavoidable. And uh, you know what happened was that he was satisfied and we were able to move on for at least a couple months, you know? It never really brought complete resolution, but it beat the tar out of hiding. It beat the tar out of escaping. You want to stay off the escapism extension? Confront life's challenges head on. But first, before you say, I'm going to pursue wisdom like Reverend Dr. Nace, or before you say, I'm going to take that head on, take yourself and your fears to the cross. Take your fears to the cross. You know, people generally find themselves on this dead-end street, the escapism extension, because they're afraid. Maybe they're afraid of the responsibility. Maybe they're afraid of the outcome. Maybe they're afraid of failure. Maybe they're afraid of the the conversation. Maybe they're afraid of the others, the people. But when you have been to the cross, when you've been to the cross, fear kind of subsides. It kind of just dissolves especially the fear of man when you've been to the cross. (laughs) When you've been to the cross, the fear of failure seems kind of silly. seems kind of ridiculous. And Jesus invites you to come to the cross. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened and want to escape. Oh, he didn't say that part. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want to to suggest that part of that invitation is he's inviting you to the cross. He's inviting you 
to find all those things we spoke of earlier when we talked about here's what happens at the cross, the forgiveness of your sin, the death of your old self and a newness of life and the daily ability to, to, to deny yourself. He's inviting you to that. He invites you to discover and receive that forgiveness. He invites you to see this new self who is capable of walking past, moving past the ramp for the escapism extension. He invites you to learn that it is safe to surrender to him. And you can die to escapism because you're loved deeply by the one who went to the cross for you. One of my favorite songs, and I thought about asking Drew to sing it last night at about 8 (laughs) o'clock. One of my favorite songs from the 70s, I should say. This doesn't really rank in the top 10 in my life or anything, but it was by a band called the Marshall Tucker Band. How many have heard of the Marshall Tucker Band? I see that hand. Yeah, good. Very good. It's, it's, the name of the song is Can't You See? It begins with a flute, ends with a flute, has great guitar work throughout it. A number of you are nodding. It's kind of a sad song. In fact, one of those guys that writes about songs, he wrote, uh, this is a story of a man running as far as he can to get away. I'm just read to you one verse from it. I'm going to buy a ticket now as far as I can. I ain't never coming back. Ride me a southbound all the way to Georgia. Till the train, it run out of track. What's he doing? Escaping. <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide, right? Trying to escape his troubles. I don't want to be that man. You don't either. You don't have to. We don't have to. We can talk to God. And through him at the cross we can get out of this escapism extension and back on the road we need to be on. I want to pray that we could do that. Just to stretch your legs and to show honor to God, if you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand? We'll take communion in just a moment. But I'd like you to unite your heart in prayer with me just regarding this issue of escapism. So if you know me, you know I think this is like the best part of the sermon. Not that it's over. That's not what I mean. This is a time when we kind of do business with God. You kind of heard the truth, and now you're kind of left with what will I do with it? And so I'd like you, if you would, just bow your heart, and uh, in the quietness of your mind, the quietness of your heart, as I pray, as these thoughts align with your own thoughts, just speak them to, to God. Father in heaven, uh, we live stressful lives. Much of that is our own doing. Much of that is because of the world we live in. Sometimes we feel like we need to get away, and sometimes we do. We trust you to provide for us times of refreshment, times of rest, times of Sabbath, so we can come back from them to take on the day. We ask you to help us distinguish the difference between that and running away and cowardice. Help us see when escapism becomes avoidance. I pray, Father, that we would see the lie that escapism is good. It makes you feel good, only for a moment. I pray, Father, that we would see the 
maybe this is too strong a word, but the ugliness, God, of laziness and just letting things go. I pray that we would see the lie of the enemy who would uh, want our lives to be in disarray. And in the name of Jesus, we would stand against him. Never believe the father of lies. Help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who will pursue wisdom as a life choice. May we pray for wisdom for ourselves and for one another. Maybe, may we be willing to, to discern when we need to take on life's difficulties by the horns and confront challenges head on in gracious ways, in helpful ways. Make us fearless, not afraid of responsibility, not cowering before that which is required of us, not fearful of failure. May we come to you and may we then move forward out of escapism extension into the glorious light of your presence as we follow you. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So I believe that most of you have your communion uh, cup. If you don't have one and you would like one, uh, Kim is standing there. Does anyone need one? Put your hand up, wave at Kim. Looks like we're good, Kim. Thank you for being, being willing to serve. So the scripture tells us, and by the way, any of you are welcome to participate in communion. If you're trusting Christ as your savior, please join us. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to do. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. He took the cup. He said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim my death until you come. Aren't you glad that he did what he did? Aren't you thankful that he didn't find an escape route? (laughs) Dodge the bullet that we think of as a cross. Aren't you thankful that he shares what he purchased on the cross with you? I want us to pray a prayer of thanks for the body of Christ, and then we'll take it together. I'm wondering which, which elder has the microphone. None of the above. Okay, Josh has the mic. He's going to go ahead and lead in prayer, uh, thanking God for the bread. Josh. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your amazing love. Yes, God. That you joyfully stepped forward to endure the cross on our behalf. And you did that because of your unthinkable desire to be with us. Both now as we live as well as when we pass on and, and enjoy eternity with you. So Jesus, we thank you for this amazing gift. It's out of a heart of thankfulness that we live. And it's by your grace that we are forgiven. In your name we pray. Amen. The body of Christ. And the scripture says that afterward, he took the cup. He told us this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. It is this cup that represents his blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. So that we don't go to the cross ever, ever to pay for our sins. We go to the cross to remember, to be replenished, to find rest for our souls. 
to be reminded of how he loves us so deeply. This blood reminds you of his great love. I'm going to ask Mr. Rolls if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the cup, and we'll take it together. Eric? Lord, we thank you for this symbolism, this representation of your blood. Lord, that you spilled for us. Lord, may we be filled with your Holy Spirit. May we be obedient. May we simply do the things that you are asking us to do. May we honor you and glorify you. We give you the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. The blood of Christ.